I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Well, Mark, I am so excited to talk to Anish Chopra today. It is always a treat to hear his deep insight and his intense optimism. I'm really excited too. Uh, Anish has been involved in so many different aspects of government policy and also delivery uh, around technology and AI. And I'm just curious to hear what's on his mind, what he's excited about, some examples that he might be able to offer us of who's doing a good job of this. And uh, I'm really looking to be inspired by this conversation. Well, and I think that he will be able to provide such an important and unique perspective because he's been in the trenches. He has been in government trying to embrace and create foster change. Uh, And now he's in healthcare where obviously having effective AI that is inclusive and non-discriminatory is literally a life or death matter. Yeah, he has an incredible portfolio and background and I'm just I'm just excited to dive in. So should we do it? Let's do it. Today we are so pleased to be joined by Anish Chopra. Anish is a master and expert of data analytics. He has deep private and public ex- sector experience, both of which we hope to touch on today. He served as Virginia's Secretary of Technology and the first Chief Technology Officer of the United States under President Obama. He is the president of Care Journey, which provides clinically relevant analytics and builds a rating system for healthcare networks. And he's co-founder of Hunch Analytics, a data analytics investment group, serves on a board as well of a nonprofit focused on unbiased healthcare utilization and cost information, the Healthcare Cost Institute. He also wrote the book, on his experience, Innovative State, How New Technologies Can Transform Government, which we'll hope to hear a little bit about today. And in full candor, Anish was one of my entry points into the tech space when I had the good fortune to work with him at the White House. He helped me understand how policy could be made better by technology and how innovation could be one of the keys to solving some of the intractable seeming policy challenges. So for all those reasons, we are so pleased to have you here today, Anish. It's an honor to be with you, Miriam. Thank you for having me. So let's jump in. So most people don't know about the inner workings of DC, let alone how uh, titles work and what it means. What did it mean to be the first chief technology officer of the United States? What were the responsibilities other than uplifting the president with your booming voice and great ideas every morning? You're very kind to say that. Uh, President Obama had campaigned on an idea that we should do more to tap the power and potential of technology, data, and innovation to solve problems. He uh, called for a chief technology officer that would report to him, that would ensure that in every aspect of our policymaking, we would be reviewing ways we can leverage these new capabilities uh, so that whatever the goals and objectives are that the Secretary of Education might champion or the Secretary of Energy we would leverage these muscles uh, and actually achieve our goals better, faster, cheaper. The role itself was a policy advisory role. I didn't have an engineering team. We weren't writing code, but the basic principle was uh, advise in three areas, ways in which the laws on the books today uh, could could, uh, benefit from and uh, accelerate the, the use of these new technologies. Number two, How might we better engage uh, the 
public in policymaking for new ideas. So how might we uh, use these same technologies to sort of reach the expertise beyond Washington lobbyists and get to the voice of the American people? Uh, and then number three, how we might be more collaborative uh, in the manner of public-private partnership, public-private nonprofit partnership to be more specific so that we can all hands on deck move towards the agenda that partially can be addressed by government action, but may also include uh, collective action or public action. And that is that was the day job. And uh, I'm honored that President Obama established this role, thankful that President Trump continued the spirit of that role, despite differences on a whole range of other issues. And obviously, we look forward to the Biden administration's continued leadership, probably leapfrogging, frankly, uh, given the quality of the talent he's already put into the administration. So that is an immense and uh, incredibly aspirational portfolio, Anish, and, and it's it's amazing that uh, we are um, lucky enough to have this kind of thinking happening inside of government. I'm wondering if you could tell us your views on kind of where we stand today. How would you rate our government's technological acumen across those different buckets that you just described? And where do we need to go? What's the kind of you know next frontier and, and, and the kind of priorities going forward? Yeah, thank you for asking. So uh, I grade in three parts. Uh, we probably get you know a CB on how government operations have modernized uh, in terms of the use of these capabilities. We you know we have historical challenges around procurement and very strong legacy installed base of technologies that have made it difficult uh, despite as much policy attention as possible to get there. So lots of room for improvement. And you'll normally see this in the form of the healthcare.gov website crashing and you know any version of future examples similarly challenged. So government as buyer and implementer has remained a challenge. Uh, we've made better progress on government as regulator. Uh, more and more of our federal agencies have embodied the principles of uh, technology and innovation into their roadmaps. And it's less about, do we have experts in AI in every department? And more about, do we have a framework that would allow us to identify risks, to uh, mitigate those risks, and you can see that very complex balance uh, being struck areas like the Food and Drug Administration in the areas of digital health and many others have found this equilibrium of, of understanding the potential for these new technologies, but wanting to protect the American people from harm. And that's getting a better grade. Maybe we'll give that a B, B plus, maybe A minus. And then I think we get an A on uh, this concept of uh, opening up the government itself as a collaborator so that a lot of the AI work that we're seeing that's going to have tremendous impact has its origins in government collaboration, whether there be federal R&D grants that facilitate investments in use cases uh, that may not otherwise get commercial attention, uh, or it may be data sets that the NIH releases on, you know, uh, medical images that really, frankly would be hard to get anywhere else that can help inform and train uh, uh, models. 
and also uh, new uh, business models that have emerged in healthcare reform that have put a premium on the use of these technologies to help make sure every patient gets the care they deserve and uh, actually encouraging a market dynamic, a reward for the effective use of these technologies. And I, I would say that collaboration for AI gets us sort of higher grade, uh, obviously with a lot of caveats about making sure that we have constraint on, on the use cases to make sure that AI is applied for good and not, not for uh, potential harm. And that, that, that remains an open book. But in terms of where we are maturity wise, I, I would grade them in that, in that way. That is uh, very helpful to get your sense of where we are. Uh, certainly some room for improvement, but it's great to hear that that uh, there is some reason to be optimistic when we look at uh, the current state of tech and government. So if you were to be advising the administration and say there's a few areas where we get from the CB status in operations and procurement, for example, um, is there a way that you think we could most easily attain those goals? Do we need to set up a separate agency to handle data analytics and tech? Great question. And this has been that lifelong debate about centralization, decentralization. As you know, Miriam, our government is structured with a very complex web of congressional oversight, agency review, investments to improve their performance. And so the ability to centralize some of these um, technologies, they may seem efficient because objectively speaking, you can only hire so many engineers and you want to put them you know, where, where they can be put to their highest and best use. The funding streams are often tied to the agencies themselves and they may have their limitations in, the, able, in their ability to field uh, you know, engineers that, that know how to use these new tools. So we've had this historical debate and I think the uh, short-term answer has to be uh, improved training and recruitment at the edge agencies for these capabilities. Maybe a little bit of a collaborative or co-op model, centers of excellence for lack of a better term, that would give you know, a little bit more scale uh, to, to the effort. But, but we, we largely have to work with the rules and, and regulations we have and the funding streams that we have, which means uh, strengthening capacity uh, agency by agency. Um, I will say there's probably more work to be done and I would expect the Biden administration to emphasize this on where we want this capability to work better and faster. Think college scorecard, a mechanism to help people taking on huge amounts of debt to find the best schools and programs that they should enroll in to give them a chance to live the American dream. We probably have just scratched the surface on that kind of match.com to say, this is me in all my glory, where should I go? We have guidance counselors, we have a whole litany of people that can do this work uh, personally, but we, don't, we haven't really harnessed the technology. There's more sophisticated ad technologies trying to put the Instagram ad on my feed to buy some obscure random thing that I didn't know I needed. And if that same tech was applied to getting a person of my underlying skills matched to uh, programs and jobs, what we would have, the limits in our economy would be lifted. We could do much more. So I think we'll see 
specific priority areas get the muscles they need to use these technologies for the greater good. I love the match.com metaphor and uh, this question about matching and skills and roles actually points us to another age-old question at this interface of technology and government, uh, which I'm curious to get your views on, which is how do we get the right talent that we need in government? Uh, traditionally, this has been difficult for a number of reasons. Um, I'm curious what you see as the state of play in terms of technologists either being cultivated within government or being brought into government from the outside, and what you think could be done to just you know better kind of integrate those two worlds so that we can get the most from technologists and technology inside of government and vice versa. Yeah, uh, hands down, uh, if you look back on my tenure, the greatest possible action I could point to that I was proudest of was, was making sure Todd Park was my successor. And Todd had a brilliant idea to make government service cool again. And with full backing from President Obama in the wake of the healthcare.gov debacle, he created a new HR function, almost headquartered in Silicon Valley, and he physically lived there to take on this role in, in many ways, to uh, inspire as many technologists on a tour of duty and so we often think about jobs in the form of maybe five or 10 year careers in an area. And in, in this tech world, it may be a three, six, nine, 12 month tour of duty. And even with that back and forth, uh, high value to the taxpayer, high value to the American people. So, so Todd created uh, the, the marketing engine that was a tour of duty for these technologists. And the Trump administration, to their credit, continued uh, embracing this. It was Jared Kushner's office, perhaps more so than the president himself, who welcomed uh, the talent in and nurtured the programs. And so we find ourselves coming out of this four years with a stronger US digital services core that I believe continues to be the single biggest lever to bring that muscle into government. Now, to be clear, these are not superheroes that fly in and fix government. That would be a horrible misunderstanding. These are allies that partner one for one with people who've been breathing and dreaming public policy, but didn't have this technical muscle. You need one and one to equal three. This isn't about broken government with heroes from tech riding you know, herd and solving everything. So if we framed it correctly, it's team, it's bringing tech to the team, but it definitely needs expertise in policy. That is the reason the US Social Service has been so effective. And that's the when I said we're gonna pick product program areas that are gonna get investment, uh, that's gonna be one. We're witnessing it right now. The Centers for Disease Control probably is the biggest team of US Social Services staff focused on the public health infrastructure modernization challenge. And that would be probably the biggest example of a way to go from a C or a B to an A as we see that team through. I didn't realize that. That's very encouraging. And I love the idea of the tour of duty. I'm so glad you brought up this model that we have underway, and I hope it continues to flourish for so many reasons. First of all, 
we know that government is never going to be able to compete with tech salaries. And so assuming that people are going to stay for decades uh, in these tech jobs is, is you know, just a very misplaced assumption. Um, but if we're dealing with the reality that they are doing a tour of duty, they're serving their country, and then go off to do other things, uh, that's realistic. Plus, how much better they can be at their next job if they've had the government experience, uh, how much better the government experience can be if they have this new energy uh, that they're using in a, a, a thoughtful way. Uh, just so many reasons why that's the right way to go. Another reason is because we need to create a more diverse pipeline. And it, it, it seems to me that is one really important way for the government to be building the infrastructure so that tech can be more diverse. And as you know, yeah, please. Well, no, I, I think that subject is equally important to emphasize the roles of the National Science Foundation, DARPA, NIH, how we fund the building of tools and the funding of researchers needs to have more diversity on the front end so that the programs that are organized to build up the new talent pipeline re reflects the diversity of America. So if you've got a very narrow funnel and you're trying to recruit a diverse uh, uh, operational team, you're limited by the supply. If we can impact the supply, that absolutely has to be a priority. And I, I think the Biden administration is gonna build on the priority that President Obama had placed and we'll see more focus and attention there. An interesting point though, and this is an area where we should pay attention in, in the context of AI, probably when you launched Equal AI, only a mere few years ago, the engineering literacy required to build a model would have been so high that only the select few could participate. What we're witnessing is, especially with investments in technology tools, in the same way I now can use my Microsoft Excel goal seek function to find an answer, like what's the optimal rate for investment returns to be able to you know, pay off my mortgage or whatever the question I have is. I, as a relatively novice uh, engineer, could, could actually perform that function because the tools abstracted a lot of the complexity. Critical to the pipeline question is to run to where the puck is going so that as these tools get democratized, the very first people that we should prioritize for the training on the tools should over-index on people of color and lower income strata as the first in line to use these capabilities. That to me is a management question that is more a public-private partnership issue. And I do hope those listening to this podcast who may come from technology companies investing in the democratization of AI, think about the badges and skills that they could uh, uh, confer on, on, on more uh, diverse populations. I think that would be phenomenal to see. And maybe there's a role of government in facilitating that through the Department of Education. I love that idea. And you know, just to build on your concern of, of bias uh, in the data, in, in the AI, um, 
so we've now talked about one potential solution of investing in this pipeline to ensure the diversity. I'm interested in your experience. You deal with so many different clients in the healthcare space. Are you finding, are you concerned about bias in AI? Is it something that you see in your work as an emerging problem, a current threat, uh, or or should we rest assured that it's under control? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not the latter. My, my, I have three areas of concern. The first area of concern is the outcomes of uh, biased models on the delivery of care. They may exacerbate, not close, inequities. The early papers written on this indicate um, an inherent racial bias such that a person who's qualified for additional benefits or care management support tend to be uh, those that have had better documentation in the system. We know more about you, which tend to be the more accessible, maybe those that have means or uh, uh, majority populations. And and as a result, the very people who need the help may not be getting the help post-algorithm. In fact, it may put them lower on the queue for any kind of external support. So there is an outcomes risk that we already, it's not even a risk, we see it, we just got to fix it. Number one. Number two, there is a separate separate related problem, uh, which is the healthcare ecosystem is data poor from a data sharing perspective. If you're trying to study purchasing patterns for e-commerce, one need only get access to Amazon's database to get the complete story of so-and-so saw an ad, clicked the ad, showed up on my website, put something in the cart, removed it from the cart, put something else in the cart, purchased, returned it. Everything is in one system. In the US healthcare environment, well, the insurance company has the billing data, the doctor has the clinical data, the lab company has the lab results, the, you know, you name it, and we are highly fragmented. There is no one database that gives you the full picture on which you could, you know, build a model. So inherently, if you're building a model on limited data, you're only garbage in, garbage out. There's only so much you can try to overfit. Lastly, and this is perhaps the most insidious, HIPAA is seen as the gold standard for privacy. And yet it is dead silent on what it means for your data once de-identified, whatever that means, can be sold like water in a market. And to have the most sensitive of our data available for purchase, I believe we do not have ethical guardrails. We certainly have no privacy frameworks that allow the American people to know is my healthcare, even in de-identified form, my data used? And, in, and if so, for what purpose? And do I have a say in that? We need a, a new ethical framework. And as we get into the technologies that allow you to re-identify these whole, this whole uh, supply chain, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. We have to figure this out. 
Now, of course, I'm biased. I happen to do research with CMS where they have an IRB protocol. Researchers have to evaluate. A data governance committee says, what do you use the data for? So I'm under a scenario where I'm heavily governed by policy constraining what my research teams do with CMS data. But in the private market, you can buy data like water and there's literally no constraint. And that seems a bit creepy. And so I do think uh, bias is a function of all three uh, factors. There's a lot to unpack there. And, and, and I think we could probably talk to you for another half an hour about each of those issues. But I think you've, you've, you've actually um, pointed to uh, what I'm hoping to ask you in my next question, which is, you know, we have a new administration in town. Um, it's very exciting in terms of what it may mean for AI, what it may mean for tech in general, also for these issues of bias and equity. Um, curious what you see as the, the kind of highest priorities. What would be on your wish list um, for the Biden administration in terms of this particular question of, of, of bias, uh, equity um, and fair outcomes in AI? Yeah, so President Biden has already named equities top four priority for the administration writ large. In my view, that is a sort of carrying card for the Office of Science and Technology Policy where my role serves, serves uh, to, to reach out to agencies to at a minimum measure bias, work to mitigate bias and uh, maybe to modernize rules and regulations so that we, uh, we, we find ourselves putting these collective assets to, to higher and better use. I think the uh, uh, equity uh, priority gives us a clear roadmap. Now, having said that, I would also anticipate we will see a doubling down of research investments because American competitiveness and rebuilding, build back better, will be about the 21st century economy, maybe the 22nd century economy, and it'll emphasize how we can build products and services in America and sell them everywhere. It is obvious the US-China battle for economic supremacy will dictate the debates, and it is unequivocal uh, AI is an area for economic competition. And we will see more investments in training tools, applications, because we have to compete in the global marketplace. And so I think in, while there'll be a constraining factor on, 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 on reducing bias, we'll see a, a rising tide lifts all boats investment plan that's gonna get people into the field. So they, these uh, parallel policies may be in conflict. One may result in additional bias before we constrain it. We, we got, or we may starve economic growth because we've over-indexed on, 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 on bias mitigation. And we're gonna see a little bit of, of um, policy iteration to try to get these two competing goals, potentially competing goals, uh, uh, to, to go in harmony. I, I'm on the side that you could do both well and actually win, but, but that's a whole different discussion. I think that there's a chance, but, but, but right now there, there, there are two, two priorities for the administration. Anish, before we wrap, I just have to ask, I've always wondered, you have been so passionate about using tech for policy. 
since I've met you, way before it was cool to use tech and innovation in policy, before the two were even really in most people's mind as intertwined or could be combined in any useful way. How did you develop this interest, this passion, this understanding that the two could fit so well together? And I will say, and I, this is a chance to plug my book, Innovative State, How New Technology Government. It, it comes from the point of view that if you are in the problem solving business, and my passion for public policy and public service is about problem solving. If that's your passion, then the age old battles between big government and little government or smaller government, left and right, those fundamentally are about assumptions that the cost of the good needs subsidy or not. So if we want broadband for everyone and it's gonna cost us $30 billion, what if we could find innovative solutions to make the cost of broadband a billion rather than 30? Would we still see a partisan fight over whether we should subsidize it or not? Why can't we make the incremental investment to de-cost? And if we can bring technology data and innovation to lower the cost of the outcome, we lower the temperature in Washington about whether we advance or stifle progress and move to a new plane where we all rally around an innovation path. And that to me, I was inspired by Sam Petroda who took this strategy on in India to give every single Indian village access to a phone in the 1980s for a pennies on the dollar if he had to outsource it to traditional uh, telecommunication systems. And so I know it can be done. We've seen the magic work. We've got to bring those muscles back in problem solving in the US. That's my view. That's terrific. And, and I, I share your enthusiasm and hope there because I think that it, it's one of the issues we've seen, I think, consistent bipartisan agreement on. Uh, this is a country that is good at innovating, that wants to innovate, um, and that should do more innovating. So, you know, here's to, to seeing more of that. Uh, Anish, we like to end with a question that we ask all of our uh, guests on the podcast, which is a quick one, really just to just sort of take the 30,000 foot view and um, give us a, a rose, a thorn, and a bud on AI. So the rose is something that you've seen recently that is great, that you're excited about. The thorn is something that's negative or that you're fearful about. Uh, and the bud is something that looks like it's coming down the pipeline in the future that you're really excited about and think we should be paying attention to. Uh, the rose for me would be the VA's work to uh, apply AI to help veterans uh, who may suffer from uh, mental health uh, disorders think about ways to connect them to the services that they need. So the work on suicide prevention and its use of AI current and forthcoming is an area that I'm excited to see uh, thrive. So kudos to the VA. Uh, the thorn uh, absolutely uh, is, is, is the misuse of, of AI in a way that reduces access to loans, reduces access to healthcare uh, services, and uh, the stories are unfortunately more than you might expect. There's an exuberance to buy the new technology without understanding what it does, and, and we see suffering as a result. So my cousin Rohit's taken on the Consumer Protection Bureau. I, I think he's going to be taking on a particular interest in those roses. And then on the buds, I do think there's an emerging consensus about consumer empowerment in AI. 
And that is to contribute your data to the models and to benefit from them more, more disproportionately. And I think that maybe that's embedded, embodied in, in privacy laws, but fundamentally it's about more um, uh, agency over my information for my betterment. And I think that's the bud I would love to see nurtured and at the bedrock of our policy moving forward. Perfect place to end. Thank you, Anish, for taking the time today. As always, it's great to hear your optimism and insights. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Anish. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I think uh, if nothing else, it's great to hear that with all the criticism you hear of government and tech, they did get some A minus, B plus, and A's in the in the report card from Manish, so that's encouraging. I couldn't believe it. That was really great news. And I think what was even more encouraging to me is that um, Anish is so excited and confident about what is yet to come in the coming years. So not only are we already on the way, but we have a good team in place to take us even further. Amen to that. Well, another exciting conversation, and I can't wait to hear our next one. Looking forward to it. See you soon, Miriam. Bye-bye, Mark. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback, and if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.